0: Welcome to Aerosmith Press Presents, a podcast where we talk to writers about their craft. I'm Alana Corgan, and today we will be talking to the playwright Kate Snodgrass. Kate is a professor of playwriting at Boston University, and the artistic director of the Boston Playwrights Theater, as well as a playwriting fellow at the Huntington Theater Company. She's written over a dozen plays, including Haiku and Observatory Conditions. Her work has been produced across the country, and have been translated to Portuguese, German, and Gaelic. She's received the Boston Theatre Critics Elliot Norton Award for Sustained Excellence and two Arnaud Awards for Best New Play. Kate's an actress in New York City and began her work as a playwright in grad school at Boston University. I'm very pleased to introduce Kate Snodgrass. I remember reading that you studied theater for your bachelor's degree and you were a thespian. Did I get that right?
1: I was an actor. yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was wonderful. This was a long ago. Now I haven't acted in a, periodically, maybe five years ago, I did something. But, um, I haven't had time to be an actor. I studied, uh, in college at Kansas university. Uh, my senior year, I got into theater and sort of found what I wanted to do. And then I got another BA at, from Wichita state university. Um, and I was in every show that I could be in there for the two years I was there and then uh, and then I went to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Uh, they take four women and eight men, and I was one of the four um, so I studied there for a year and then uh, and then I went to New York for ten years, lived in New York, mostly I typed. (laughs) as a legal secretary, but I did get uh, a couple of jobs. I I was on a soap opera for about a week. I played nurse Barbara. Uh, My favorite line was, the platelets are back from the lab doctor and it doesn't look good. (laughs) Uh, I also also, uh, got my equity card Mm-hmm. and uh, uh, auditioned. But, uh, you know, life, life happened. And I went back to Kansas to be with my mother after my dad died. And, uh, and then she passed away. And I moved to Boston. Um, to Because when I was in Wichita, then I started to study uh, fiction and playwriting. And the first play I wrote in the class won a national award and i was very happy <laughs> because i'd found something that maybe i could stay in the theater because oh, that, was, that was my dream
0: what was the play about the one that you
1: wrote um it was a one act it, there was a, a one act competition at uh, the actors theater of louisville which at the time was uh running something they called the Heidemann award it was a national award, and they were very they were where the buck stopped with one acts and 10 minute plays. And so it won this award and it was published um, uh, by Applause Theatre Books. And then I got an acting edition with Sam French, and uh, it was about it's about a mother and two two daughters, um, uh, one of whom is autistic um, and The the range of autism, uh, as you if you know anything about autism, this on being on the spectrum. This is a very on the on the edge of the spectrum. Um, So uh, it's it's actually about art (laughs) and and the artist and what you have to do to be an artist. But uh, but that's very subtle in the play. It's really about. It's a coming home play for one of the daughters, a rapprochement um, between the mother and the daughter. Um, So that's really what happens in the play. But um, uh, it's called Haiku. And uh, uh, and I've uh, I've actually made some money off off that little one act. It's anthologized in a number of places. And um, I remember being uh, being in St. Lucia with Derek one, one summer, and he was running a workshop for um, playwrights and poets. And the Trinidad Theatre Workshop was there and we were, you know, hanging out in the ocean. And some, uh, some uh, students from Texas had joined us uh, because they were following Derek around, as people tended to do, follow Derek. And we were So I was treading water (laughs) and they said, so, Kate, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a playwright. And they said, well, well, what have you written? Would we know anything? And I said, I doubt it. There's one act out there, but you probably wouldn't be familiar with it. And they said, what's the name of it? I said, well, it's called Haiku. And they said, Haiku? It's the most produced one act in the nation. (laughs) And I went. It is? (laughs) I have no idea. I wasn't getting those royalties. (laughs) But um, uh, that's because a lot of high schools use the play because it has three women in it. Mm -hmm. So they use it for drama uh, competitions where they don't have to pay for royalties. But over the years, I have I get a check, still get checks from um, uh, the publishing house the people who are doing the play. So, you know, that's that's really nice. It's a good, good thing.
0: Yeah. And that was 1995 that Haiku premiered.
1: No, that was earlier. It was. Uh, boy, I want to say 19, 1988. Oh, wow. It was early. Uh, yeah, I wrote it when I was in, I, I started studying, when I was back uh, taking care of my mother, I started an MFA program in creative writing, and that's where I wrote it, because I had an elective class in playwriting. I was studying fiction and then uh, playwriting. I took one class and wrote this play and sent it out thinking, uh oh, and it won this award. So it, then I, when I moved to Boston I entered the MA in Creative Writing here at BU and got that degree. And that's when it won the award. So it must've been 88, 89, something like that.
0: Okay. Do you think kind of your background in fiction had a lot to do with the way you write plays? Cause I am taking a lot of fiction workshops right now and definitely like you can tell when the dialogue kicks in when the playwright comes out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, Derek uh, was of the opinion that uh, that poets were better playwrights, Um, but I'm not sure that's true. I think it has to do with how we hear dialogue, how we how we listen. So um, and fiction is very different. You know, you approach it differently. You. Yeah, uh, uh, when I'm writing a play, I see it on stage and I just follow the characters as they're speaking. I I see things, but I, I hear them more. Actors are the best playwrights, I think, because we understand we have to sit in the characters, each one of them, from their point of view, and actors instinctively do that. <laughs> I agree, I, I think every playwright should have acting training. A reader might say, uh, why why did they, Why did they do that? Why did they say that in that moment that seems nonsensical? But, you know, as an actor, as a as a playwright, you're feeling it and you go to that place instead of um, making it rote or, you know, our goal is to surprise. And um, the characters surprise us as we're writing. And if we allow them to do that, then, you know, non sequiturs happen all the time in real life and on the page. <laughs> right.
0: And when you direct, do you find you want to find those surprises through the actors or is it kind of like organic? Like, Oh, I didn't even realize that that the playwright was trying to make this point. Or something
1: you know, like that. Yeah, it's uh, directing is hard because you have to have an overview of everything and how everything is going to affect everything else. And um, uh, I find it daunting unless I really understand what the playwright wants, and um, and that's not every play I read. But um, yeah, directing uh, the director has to be the real psychologist. Oh yeah, that, you know that is really where it's at. And yeah, we want a surprise. We want a surprise and. And I my favorite thing is when the playwright's in the room so we can ask the playwright or we can surprise the playwright and say, you know, think about this. Maybe it's something. Uh, those, those are my favorite moments when when um, uh, a surprise happens and we discover in the moment what the character wants. And maybe the playwright doesn't even know it, but the, with the actor and the director and the playwright, you know, that triangle we discover, and that's, that's my favorite thing. That's why I love new plays and working on new plays, because they're so surprising. You know, it's just trying to make every moment work. So it, it happens when an actor does not understand the line and where they're going. So you start to talk about that, and then the playwright will try and, and clue us in, and then we talk about that, and then the actor comes in, and then the director. So it's very, very spontaneous. Those discoveries, um, but which is why I don't remember them because they, they just roll off the tongue. It's it happens every time. I mean, we're in the room together, so it's hard to pinpoint just one moment.
0: Yeah, I sometimes even feel like. Um, one of my plays um, was directed a while ago and was made into like an audio play. And I remember the actor was talking to me and he was like, oh my God, like this monologue, it's like all about the process of grief and like how I understood it and how you have to move on and how things aren't the same. And I was like, yes, that was my intention when I wrote that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I didn't know it, but that's right. (laughs) Yes, you nailed it exactly, Ryan. You did (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) yeah. Isn't that fun though? It's so much fun to have good actors bring, you know, what they do, their their innate humanity. Yeah. It makes everything bigger and, and better.
0: And like a good director when they get a good play and they have like that great team can really take a story that maybe the playwright didn't think had like this kind of level of like intimacy or something like that or vulnerability, but the right. way that it's received by the actors and projected by the director can really yeah. just take it to a whole different kind of idea of what the story can be. I always thought exactly. that was really cool.
1: Exactly, there are translators, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it's a it's a wonderful feeling. I know, uh, you know, many playwrights think in the process um an actor will ask the playwright well what did you mean here and it I've discovered over the years that actually it's okay to say I don't know I don't know why that is I felt it I don't know why and then you start to talk about why that is and you come up with the answer and it's uh it's spectacular it's really so much fun
0: Did you ever see this happen with like one of the thesis writers at BU or like with one of the alumni?
1: All the time. All the time. It happens every every time we're in rehearsal. A playwright will discover something and and say, I don't know. I don't know why. And then (laughs) and then we figure it out. I you know, there's no specific example because it happens every time we go to rehearsal.
0: Right. Um,
1: (laughs) It's uh, it's eye opening for everyone
0: yeah and i feel like especially with like very new writers like people who are doing their mfa in playwriting i feel like a lot of people who go into playwriting don't always have a background in playwriting because it's hard to do like an undergraduate degree in that unless you go to like a specific academy or repertoire theater so they don't always know exactly what they're writing so they give it to their translators mm-hmm. and then it's just
1: transformed and transformed and sometimes it doesn't work <laughs> sometimes the translators don't understand or they they go down a different road and you know it that's the problem of playwriting the challenge i should say mm-hmm. to to know to really know what you're writing and what you want to communicate and to know that nope we're going down the wrong road we have to turn this way instead and and that's what makes you know the challenge is that everybody in the room has to go down that road. Four people can't go down this road and two this way. It's got to be everybody moving and it's getting a
0: Robert Frost poem,
1: <laughs> right? The road less traveled.
0: <laughs> That's translated.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> That's good.
0: <laughs> but. Uh, You worked a lot um, at the Playwright Theater with Derek Walcott, and he passed away about five years ago, I think. Uh,
1: 2017,
0: I think. About Uh, five years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, He was an eccentric, mercurial, generous man, uh, and uh, bigger than life, bigger than. Than you know Ben Hur, <laughs> and we were we followed him around like little puppies. What will he do next? Um, he was a, a a wonderful friend of mine and uh, responsible really for for my being uh, artistic director of Boston Playwrights. He trusted me enough that he let me let me run the theater while he was gone, and. Uh, Uh, made me artistic director when he decided to retire and become founder instead of artistic director. So, you know, he's responsible for my life in the theater, uh, really. He was a wonderful, um, a wonderful person in my life. Mm
0: -hmm. What was one of your favorite memories in the theater with him? (laughs) There are so many.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There are many, many memories. I was lucky enough to sit in on his playwriting classes um, for 20 years. So I saw, you know, I, I saw a lot of moments. Um, There's a joke that people tell about Derek. uh, That he was he is uh, also a painter. So he's very visual. And um, also he he wanted to bring poetry back to the American theater, he said. And by poetry, I don't mean necessarily that people have to write in verse. He thought, for example, that David Mamet was a poet because the lines are very rhythmical,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: um, in in uh, how the people speak. And so Derek wanted to do that, he um, and he was adamant about it. So he would stop. We would have bring in actors to the classes, and he would stop the actors after if he didn't understand what was going on, he would stop them and then play. And there's a joke that that one, you know, one hapless playwright only heard the first line of his play in one semester. He never got to hear the rest of it. And that's because Derek was, you know, he was he was a strong mover. in in terms of where are we? What is the audience understanding? And, um, and how can we make it even more potent? And, um, and so he just never gave in. He always played and and that's uh, the beginning of a play. I think it's one of the things that I've taken away from uh, listening to Derek is that the beginning of a play is vitally important and uh, certainly the first 10 pages um, I think the I think the entire play and the ending is in the beginning and it all depends on on where you begin that play in terms of the overall arc of the story so um, like Romeo and Juliet,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it starts in the middle of something, a middle of a feud. And that's that's the world of the play. So we have to. We have to start. We have to know the world of the play before we can begin. Yeah. Uh, and, and Derek laughed a lot. He he made jokes um, I think he was more, uh, he was more challenged in the theater than he was in poetry. He knew, he knew poetry backwards and forwards. He could talk about it. He could recite. He knew the rules. He was, he was very hard nosed about it, but theater was less, less clear for him because the voices are so different and the actors are so different. And it depends on the actor so much. The translator again, so you know he was he wasn't translating his poetry. He was going from here to the page, but in theater he was going here to here to here, (laughs) and then the page. And so it becomes much more complicated. The degrees of
0: separation from the page, almost
1: exactly. Yes, it's a it's a blueprint. You know, the the play is a blueprint for the for the actors and director to, to bring out what's there. My favorite play is um, Crap's Last Tape. Yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, I had a theater director who was a mentor of mine, and he would do that as a, as a project for every couple of years, he would be crap. And um, he did that from his 40s to into his 70s. Um, played that role, and uh, I just find that play so moving. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful piece. Mm-hmm. I Beck- was always
0: oh. a fan of a uh, catastrophe. That's my favorite Beckett piece. Oh, right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was amazing, wasn't he?
0: Yeah,
1: amazing. Yeah, and he loved actors. Yes, I know oh. he
0: was um, particularly fond of Billy Whitelaw. It's
1: Yes. Uh, When she did uh, Not I. Yes. The mouth. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, And she was, uh, there's a story that she went back to her dressing room and just collapsed. Mm -hmm. And Beckett came in and was all worried and said, oh, Billy, Billy, what have I done to you? It's just heart-wrenching and also wonderful. I mean, they were such good friends and he revered her and, and rightfully so wonderful actor
0: yeah I mean and I think it's so fascinating I'm sure you can just relate as a playwright and then again as like a teacher what it was like for him to like teach French and then write most of his plays in French and then do the translating into English
1: yes yeah yeah I I'm I'm sort of amazed that he did that um Mm -hmm. uh you know i he taught french at trinity i think um but he lived in france you know and was with the underground with the french resistance yeah french resistance and um some people say that uh you know he met his longtime partner and that uh, uh uh waiting for godot was was them hiding from the nazis not being able to move or leave crazy what a life huh i adore him did you hear did you did you know that he was knifed at one point do you know
0: yeah and they went to court and the guys well he seems nice so i don't know to press charges
1: he asked him why did you why did you knife me and the guy said i don't
0: know
1: i don't know and that's at the heart of absurdism yeah right at the heart of it i don't know it's futile it's it's nonsensical i don't know why i did that i did and I just uh,
0: did. it was my instinct it was my human nature to do this i guess but i don't know
1: right i don't know wonderful wonderful stories did you yeah. ever see
0: anything that kind of followed that idea of absurdism in any of the place you've ever worked with at the playwright's theater for people oh, who try to experiment with something like that?
1: Well, you know, absurdism has seeped into our modern drama. Mm-hmm. We can't we can't not acknowledge it, you know. Uh, but the the key is that it can't be derivative. Um, I'm not interested in, in seeing a play that's imitating Beckett. But, you know, like Harold Pinter is absurd. His stuff is you know, out there, (laughs) birthday party. We don't know what's going on, but it's hilarious and funny. Um, uh, So it's seeped into everything that we do. So it's hard to, hard to, uh, imagine now without it, because it's, it's so much a part of our lives Um, and to nail, oh, that's absurd. Yes, there are plays that, that, Uh, especially now, I think, you know, in in what I see in a lot of uh, the plays being written now, there are there's an absurd element many times, unless they're writing a, quote, well made play, which is nothing wrong with that. If you can do it, do it. But um, there's a lot of absurdism in there. Um, Yeah. Uh, Susan Laurie Parks. Oh, gosh, so many um, use that in terms of what they're communicating to the audience. They're not afraid to to walk down that road.
0: Right.
1: Beckett's had a huge impact on, you know, Pinter and Stoppard. And uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. So it, it's there whether we want it to, or not. And I personally like it.
0: Did you ever have to like study a language when you were doing theater, or fiction, or playwriting?
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that our MFA requires at BU, is uh, to be able to read another language. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important in terms of making, making us not simply American playwrights, but playwrights of the world. Mm-hmm. And the ability to translate, I think, is so important. Um, So many people translate Chekhov, you know, and 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 adapt and are inspired by that. And um, yeah, I studied French and I've studied Italian as well. Um, uh, And um, I was uh, in Latin, uh, you know, uh, in high school, did three years of Latin. So it's it's important, I think, to be able to understand that there's another culture out there and there perceiving the world differently. Yeah. And you can tell it in the language. Yeah. Did
0: you ever do a play at the playwright theater or just another theater you worked at that was completely in a different language other than English?
1: No, we have not supported one, but um, we're at BU. So occasionally the French department or the Spanish department will bring a play over and produce it um at our theater and so yeah we've done that but i've not been part of it really i've just opened the doors and said come on in
0: yeah yeah i think one of the most interesting things i saw about your play haiku is that it was translated into gaelic
1: yeah you don't see that very often no i know they took it to uh the abbey theater uh at a um uh a competition i think um, but, yeah, I was so excited about that into Gaelic wow, very cool so it got uh, got some good reviews I think good yes. yeah, yeah and german um uh they translated into German as well, and I think portuguese i 'm not i 'm not sure it it 's gotten out in the world a little bit
0: I think it 's so good, especially you know like Ireland has like much like, you know, colonial, like America has the history of colonization from the English and kind of the erasure of their Gaelic language. Yeah. So it's almost like haiku being translated to Gaelic kind of gave them their culture that they wanted to express through the story of how to become
1: an artist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it makes me feel good as a playwright, you know? Yeah. That's a wonderful thing to touch people's lives.
0: Do you think um, with like kind of like this new age in theater where like more plays are being streamed online or like filmed and then put online like what do you think about something like that
1: I've seen some really good ones online and um, the National theater um, it does some wonderful work they get really close up mm-hmm. you know it's very costly for us we don't we, we I think we would not do that very well, but the National Theatre does it extremely well.
0: Mm-hmm. And I've
1: been to uh, many of those wonderful stuff. I am not. I don't object to it, but it's a different experience, that's all. And I, I much prefer being in the room mm-hmm. and seeing the actors sweat and feeling that energy back and forth between them and us. Um, there's nothing like it and I'm not, I'm one of those people that believe that theater will continue no matter what. It's not TV, movies. They can't stop us. Mm-hmm. It's really that experience that that people go go to see. The the um, it's like going to church. Yeah. Yeah, we have it's the some- same experience. I think um, my what changed my life was seeing Peter Brooks' Midsummer Night's Dream. It was, I was sitting way up in paradise, way in the back of the theater, up top, and I'll never forget. Uh, It changed the way I I thought about Shakespeare. It changed the way I thought about the theater and what needs to happen. It was magnificent. It doesn't happen that often either. No. But those experiences for my for me, I can count them almost on one hand, the experiences I've had, and they have sustained me through the bad theater. (laughs) We keep going back to see if we can have that experience again, because it's so powerful. And that's you know, that's why I'm in theater, because every now and then I get that experience.
0: What were some of the other experiences?
1: uh, I saw the original fool for love, which was wonderful. Um, uh, you know, recently I saw not recently, but within the last 10 years, um, the Huntington did Candide oh, and wonderful. it was, uh, it was just spectacular. You walk out of the theater feeling as ebullient and just, like you've been somewhere and, um, and been affected. Uh, I saw um, a little theater. It was speakeasy. Um, many years ago now, they did the musical Passion by Sondheim. And you may not know it. It's, a, it's a, about a stalker, actually, <laughs> a woman who's madly in love with this guy. She's not very pretty. And uh, he, anyway, um, uh, that was very, very moving. Uh, it, it, as I say, it doesn't doesn't happen that often, you know, every five years or so. <laughs> um, but I keep sticking around hoping. Uh, Equus was a, another one. I, I went your to see that. Oh, my gosh, he's wonderful, isn't he? Um, I, I
0: adore everything he's ever written, like Royal uh, Hunt of the Sun, I think is one of the greatest masterpieces of the 20th century, like nothing comes close.
1: Yeah. And Amadeus.
0: That is my favorite movie in the world. My favorite movie. (laughs) Great.
1: (laughs) Good, good. You might like my favorite movie, which is Babette's Feast.
0: Yes, I've seen that. Um, uh, Funny enough, I had never heard the movie, but then somebody um, sent me a video of A cook preparing the feast from Babette's Feast, and I was like, "This whole movie looks beautiful." So I watched it one day.
1: Oh, I loved it so much. Again, it's about the artist. Yeah, artist. Yeah, beautiful stuff. Oh, good.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, and I'm sure there have been like audiences who have seen like Haiku or The Glider and have felt transported by your work.
1: I've had some some wonderful feedback about either both of those plays, Haiku in particular, um, I think because there are are a lot of people out there experience autism Mm -hmm. and it it moves them in a way that I was totally unexpected for me. Uh, uh, So I'm I'm very proud of that and and that it could affect people in that way. That's wonderful we can't ask for better
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah
0: i that is my hope if i were become a more published playwright, that people are like your work moved me and i can be like oh thank you <laughs> right. i'm glad it made a difference in your world <laughs> yeah
1: right right we're just trying we're trying to communicate something and say you know do you feel this too and and people will answer um that's our goal at least, mm-hmm. communicate something important and and, and connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think
0: with that intimacy, and like even like just the way like a production will be held like in a theater, like if it's like the thrust stage or like a black box or just something where the audience is close enough to feel the actors breathe, yeah. it's not like, oh, this is a story about their difficulties or their family. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm in part of this as well. This is my family. That's how my mom would act. This is my best friend who's suffering like that or laughing yeah. like that.
1: Yeah. I think that's why I, I love the smaller theaters even more. It's, it's harder to touch a huge audience. Broadway tries, and, and sometimes they succeed, but um, uh, it's much more intimate and much more personal when there's 100 people in the audience and we're all together in one in one moment and it's Mm -hmm. very very moving
0: Mm -hmm. have you have you ever seen the woman in black
1: yes Yes. (laughs) yeah that's pretty spooky That, that can get scary
0: yeah that was kind of the first time In my life, I understood the power of live, live theater (laughs) because it wasn't just the actors like in a movie affected by a ghost or a haunting or a trauma. We were actively there in that space, like in our seats.
1: Yeah, it was, (laughs) you know, that play can be done badly. (laughs) And if it's done badly, we don't feel that. Mm-hmm. You, know, you must have seen a good production. I saw a great production. <laughs> it was good. I did too, you know. It was, I, I got a little scared and um, spooked. And isn't that what we want to do in the theater? We want a surprise. We want to spook people out. We want to make them laugh. And, if, uh, you know, that plays very successful in that, if you do it right.
0: It's. I think just for any play, holding the tension just right and lingering on the moments where the actors don't do the verbal translating and they're just there existing with each other in their world. And you're like, oh, God, they don't know.
1: Yeah. Going back to Beckett again, you know, (laughs) here we go. Use those actors.
0: At what point did you think that you had the kind of makings to become like a playwright? Because you studied creative writing at BU.
1: I did um, you know I uh, that that comes with haiku when I went back when I went back to Kansas again to take care of my mom um, uh, 10 years after living in New York um, I, I started I, because I'd taken all the classes in theater there uh, I thought well I'll go over to creative writing <laughs> and I'd written a, a piece of fiction that they liked and so uh, uh, I started studying fiction and went into an MFA program in fiction. But one of the uh, electives was playwriting. So I thought, well, I would be able to write a play because I have all this, you know, 20 years of experience now um, or 15, 20 years, whatever. And I wrote haiku and that, and I redrafted it Um got feedback, and then I sent it to the Actors Theatre of Louisville and it won the national award. Surprise, who knew? And i that's when I thought, oh my gosh, maybe there's something I can do in the theatre. Yeah. That, that's when um, my partner at the time got an offer from BU that he couldn't refuse as a director. So I just followed him, you know, that, that's what we do back, back then. And I followed him to Boston and uh, was admitted to the creative writing program in fiction and in playwriting. And that's when I met Derek. And that's when I got to stay in the theater because Derek allowed me to direct and to produce the plays while he was traveling and whatever. So I got to do what I wanted to do. And I'm so thankful for that. His yeah. generosity, you know, uh, in allowing me to to do what I love and to, and he supported me. He said, he told BU, well, Kate has worked here for a couple of years. She deserves a real job. <clears throat> and um, and they gave me a real job because Derek said, give her a real job. Yeah, he was, he was a wonderful, generous person in that way. And it was a symbiotic relationship because you know, I would, I would produce the plays and that was good for him and good for the program. And he would allow me to do what I loved. So I, I will be forever in his debt because of that.
0: I remember you telling me that Derek had like, almost like a groupy following of like theater people. Like, What was that whole kind of culture like? Like, were they all actors or were they like sound technicians, playwrights?
1: They were, they were pretty much everybody. <laughs> he had a lot of poets and a lot of um, actors and, of course, playwrights uh, following him around. He He loved the attention, I think. He loved to take people to lunch, especially at a Chinese restaurant near his house. And we would have a, a huge round table of people sitting and talking and um, uh, laughing. He told a lot of very bad jokes, very very bad jokes. Like mushroom. Oh, I, I've said this maybe. A mushroom walks into a bar. Anybody want a date? I'm a real fun guy. Oh my God, <laughs> so bad, so 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 bad. Absolute
0: bad humor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he loved puns and uh, anything that had to do with language. So uh, uh, he would hold court and we would all hang on his every word because what came out of his mouth was pretty brilliant most of the time when he wasn't telling those bad jokes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was a very uh, convivial, uh, loving sort of time for me and, and for the people who, who followed him around, like puppies. Yeah. Uh, what will Derek say next? And he was also very um, generous with, uh, he loved teaching. So I remember being in St. Lucia once with the uh, Trinidad Theater Workshop, and, um, and there were students from Texas where he had taught, um, students from Canada where he had taught, would follow him to St. Lucia and celebrate his birthday. Um, We would all meet in January and and, uh, hang out at Derek's house and uh, along the beach and and just follow him around again. Um, He would work with the poets, especially the poets, but also playwrights reading their work and responding. So he was a wonderful, generous teacher as well as a human being. And he was mercurial as well, very, you know, I saw him angry a couple of times and I didn't want to see it again. <laughs> he would yell and then, you know, demand uh, whatever it was that uh, he wanted at the time. And and he wa- he wore his heart on his sleeve. He, he was who he was and you either accepted it or you didn't.
0: Yeah. And wasn't it, like around your time when you were like getting to know Derek when Haiku came in like 1988,
1: 89? hmm I, I uh, brought Haiku because it it hadn't, I can't remember. I think it had, I'm not sure if it had won the award yet, mm-hmm. but when I started, um, uh, I brought Haiku into the into the class and he very much liked it. But then of course, when we bring it into the class, you expect to revise it. So I revised it like another four times over that course of that year and uh, uh, ended up using the original draft (laughs) and not the revisions. But what I learned was I learned a lot from those revisions. I learned what my play was about. I learned why the the draft I had started out with which was actually the fourth draft from when I was in Kansas, why that draft worked and why the subsequent uh, revisions did not. And so it really, it, uh, I think back and think, I learned a hell of a lot in that first year, just, just revising and revising the revision and um, going too far. But um, uh, I think, you know, we all have to be careful as playwrights. We don't, uh, sometimes our ins- what inspires us immediately is the best. And, and when we hone it and try to change it, um, we come at it from a different point of view and it can, can make the house of cards fall down. So we, we have to be careful about that. We have to hold on to our original inspiration and write around that as best we can and know when to stop.
0: I remember reading that Haiku had like a film version for the Boston Film Festival.
1: It does, yeah. yeah. Um, the director entered it in a number of film festivals. I think you can even see it on YouTube. Um, uh, it's a, a different draft. It's a screenplay, um, which Louie Godema, who's the director of that, um, uh, co- co-wrote with me um it's uh it's it lasts about 20 minutes the play itself is about 45 minutes so it's cut down shaped a little differently um and part of the uh process had to do with um not having enough money to have an extra actor <laughs> so uh, uh we you know, we couldn't film one of the flashbacks because of that. But, uh, you know, the film is what it is. And uh, Louis did a great job. Mm-hmm. And it was in the Boston Film Festival. So yeah. that's cool. Yeah, can't
0: complain. Yeah. yeah. That had to be, I would feel so odd to see my play transition from like a live stage experience into a filmed experience. Yeah. Like you, you talked about um, kind of all the revisions and being careful as a playwright when you're editing and revising how, how was that like watching the play transition into a screenplay because there are different kind of formatting and like storytelling techniques
1: yeah so. it was it was different um he luckily he re- really respected the play so uh, every all the dialogue is mine what he managed to do is you know, uh, cut it down to its essence, um, the movement of the, of the piece. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I was respectful of that. I wished that he had been able to have that third flashback in the, in the screenplay, because for me, that's the turning point. That's the point of the play. It explains uh, uh, what happens at the end. But, you know, maybe nobody would notice that except me. I don't know. But I was, I was very uh, pleased overall with what, what he managed to do with it and the cutting because he kept my words, I was happy. Yeah. Um, it was interesting though, trying to cast it because um, he wanted movie stars sure. and it turns out that a number of movie stars said that they would do it. Like, oh my gosh, Olympia Dukakis.
0: Oh my God.
1: Uh, Jessica Tandy. Although Jessica uh, at some point bowed out because she was afraid she was going to be ill, and and couldn't do it. But she has initially said yes. Um, uh, Lindsay Kraus. Uh, there were some uh, others that I you know I can't remember off the top of my head, but they were. But you know that spoke to me. That said, these wonderful actors see a wonderful piece that they want to. Bring to life, so that made me feel great. Yeah. So then, but then we ended up using wonderful um, local actors: Bronia Wheeler, um, the wife of David Wheeler, uh, as a wonderful mom in it, and Dossie Peabody, who's a wonderful friend of mine now. I I revere her. I she's one of the best actors I've ever seen, and she's in the show. And Sheila Stasek. Um, who I've known for decades as well. So I was very, very pleased with what we ended up with in terms of the acting quality. It just, they they made it work.
0: Yeah, and like, I'm sure you already know this as like a well-seasoned performer, like it had to feel so validating to have actors who found such sustenance yes. and like such meaning. Um, and not just in the story, but in the characters that they wanted to play.
1: Yeah, they
0: found it intriguing and compelling and difficult.
1: Yes, and and that's why I revere actors, because if we can get those good actors to follow us around, then that it is, as you say, validating, uh, and it makes us makes me want to write more for them, it makes me want to make them happy, <laughs> and give them a part that they can really you know mold and shape and and experience something uh important with in their own lives so yeah. yeah yeah
0: and then like with all the success of haiku um your next play observatory um also won like the best play in the southeastern like theater lab and another Erna. like yeah wh- what what was that kind of like like haiku like was a short film and it won all these awards and then you have like almost the well you do have the equally successful observatory like what what was that like drafting that
1: well that that play i i i still have it in a drawer i still think i can do better with that play <clears throat> um, many many drafts of that play <laughs> but um uh, my friend dossie peabody from haiku uh, consented to be in it, and as soon as she did that, I I was so thankful. And we visited and uh, the observatory out at Harvard, Mass. And uh, I have pictures of myself with that telescope. I'm very very interested in the sky. Uh, also, uh, uh, there's a theater company that I connected with in in uh, Greenville, Mississippi. Oh my! And they produced haiku. Uh, there and they called me and said, would you come down and see our production? And by this time I had seen a number of productions of Haiku, some of them very, very bad. And I I didn't wanna see it badly done again. So I said, no, no, I'm sorry, I can't come down. But then he called me again and begged me to come down. He said, you don't understand this play has changed lives. And that was that was the key right there. I said, Oh, my God, it's changed lives. Okay, I'll come down. And I went down and they, they showed me all around and, and took me to parties and, and, uh, and the play was wonderful. And they, they took it to the south, uh, southeastern theater conference and won the award there for best production, and deservedly so. And they became my dear friends. So they produced Observatory and they produced The Glider. And they took me, all three of those plays, they took me to Ireland to the uh, International Community Theater Conference. And we did all three of those plays there and won awards in Ireland. So, you know, I, I said yes finally to them and I got to see the world. They paid for it too. I was like, okay, I'm gonna see the world. I'm a playwright, it's wonderful.
0: Yeah, and especially since haiku has been translated into like German and Portuguese, and then I was surprised to see that it was translated into Gaelic. Yes. And like, that is like such a centered language. Like you can like speak Portuguese in like Spain, Portugal and like parts of Latin America, but like Gaelic is not everybody's first language.
1: Well, sometimes it is if you live in Ireland. That's true. <laughs> they study it over there. Mm-hmm. Um, a theater company—I uh, think it was the Druid—and they—they um, only do uh, plays in Gaelic. But for some reason, they discovered it and translated it, and then they took it to the Abbey Theater in in Dublin to um, uh, to compete. I don't know what happened there, but um, they were they were wonderful. Um, uh, I had contact with a couple of the actors, and I tried to see it. I tried to go over and see it, but I I couldn't make it. Um, but I'm told it was wonderful. Yeah, there's that.
0: That had to feel like such a special connection because Boston has such a large Irish population and a lot of Irish immigrants. Yeah. And then I know, like people like to think that Ireland's first language is English, but almost all the signs in Ireland at least the places like that uh-huh. I've seen are all in Gaelic right. and then English
1: right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a real privilege for for them to translate that play yeah.
0: yeah and then um you have a couple of short plays like um Le Des and Que Sera are those all also like one acts but like a little adapted
1: yeah they're they're about 10-15 minutes long I've several other 10 minute plays that were done in the Boston theater marathon and also who are published out there in the world. Um, Yeah. And I have a radio play right now that you can all listen to on uh, the uh, Huntington theater site, dream Boston it's called, and um, it's called overture. So, you know, you can take a look at that. It's only seven minutes long, but I think it's potent.
0: Yeah. I really like to write a mixture between one act and 10 minutes. And it's kind of like the difference between writing like a short story and then like flash
1: fiction. Yes. Very similar. Yeah. And so
0: like, do you like, I know like playwrights get this question a lot, but I'm just genuinely curious. Like, do you have a preference between one acts and like 10, 15 minute
1: plays? I don't have a preference. I think these things come to us differently. Um, you know, you as a writer, I'm sure when when, when an idea comes to me, I, I know if, it's, if I can say it in 10 minutes, but if I need longer, it comes to me in a longer form. I need whatever it is that I see in my head. And I usually see people on stage, um, I know if I have enough time or if I'm going to need longer to tell that story, to explore it. I think the same thing happens with fiction as well. We know we just see a moment, but if we see longer, if we see it, it you, what happens to you? I mean, do you see the, do you see things on stage when you're writing for plays or do you, what, what happens with the fiction?
0: Yeah, like, when I'm writing plays, um, it's kind of going back to what you are saying. Like, I want to keep that, like, essence of the story. And if the essence of the story can be told in 10 minutes, I'm like, all right, I really just want to focus on, like, this one event or this one conversation between these people. And I don't want to stretch something out that's only meant to be a brief moment. But sometimes that brief moment can become, like, a chapter in, like, a bigger set. Yes. Like, I'm sure like you have had this experience where you like write like a short play or a 10 minute play and then you use that foundation to be a longer piece.
1: Exactly. In fact, that's what I'm, I did um, just a couple of years ago. I started writing a, uh, a piece. I only write now unless I have a, a commission or a deadline and deadlines are really powerful so uh, when the Huntington commissioned me to write the radio play, they gave me uh, it's like writing an ode. They, they gave me some rules. They said it must be a, a very specific place in Boston that people know about. It has to take place in the future. Um, and it has to, uh, and it's a radio play, and it... Uh, it has to be only five to seven minutes long. So I knew immediately that I only had this much time to say what it is I wanted to say. And, and they said it should be a little bit um, positive rather than negative. And this was uh, in the midst of the quarantine. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to set it in the future. I knew that it was a radio play. I, I picked a place in Boston which is a favorite place of mine, even though I've never been there, which is the dome uh, over at MIT, that large dome that they put the car on top of. (laughs) Um, I've always wanted to go there. I'll never, they won't let me, but uh, uh, whatever. So I set it up there and uh, picked a a time in 1924. And then I thought, what, what, do I want to say about this? And uh, I think uh, deadlines and rules are really helpful in terms of playwriting and any, any writing, actually. Um, so, I, uh, and this last two years, I had to write something for a faculty recital, so to speak, at one of the, um, at Leslie University, where I was moonlighting. Uh, and they asked me to do something uh, one evening as a faculty person reading, and I had not written anything in a long time, so I asked myself what, what, what spurs you to write? What do you have something to say about? And at the time, uh, I had just suffered through the Kavanaugh hearings, mm-hmm. and um, they made me. I was enraged, let me put it that way. And I thought, I must write about this. And then, so I started to ask myself, what is at the heart of of how men seem to feel about women in this society? And and that's what spurred that. And I wrote uh, about a 15-minute, 15 15 to 20-minute scene where I established who these people are, what was the problem and, and how it um, uh, played out. And from that, then uh, the Huntington asked me to um, write a fuller piece around that. And so then I started, as you say, to write scenes with just two people in them or three people, just writing a, around that scenario. And that's, I've got a full-length play now because of that, writing those short scenes that I can put together and, and uh, shape into a fuller piece.
0: Yeah, it's like the way Alison Bechtel, like, describes her writing process, like, she has a main theme, and then she's like, I put myself in the middle of the labyrinth, and I try uh-huh. to spin around and around and around, trying to find my way out of it.
1: That's great, great image, yeah. And it feels I- like,
0: and yeah fun like the way you were describing it like the folding play you find yourself in the middle of like the theme and the characters and you spin around and around trying to find the possible ending to all yeah. this how to wrap it up
1: yeah the key with all of that is not to judge is to just let it happen and then see what you have um uh i think so many of our students um you know have feel feel the competition feel the, the stress and the tension of, I have to write something good. And once that happens, everything good sort of falls out the window. It disappears into the air. But if you can talk about, I just want to explore this. I just want to see what's there and not judge it. You'll find what's there. It comes out and shows its, rears its ugly head. <laughs> about what you're writing. Thanks for listening. Aerosmith Press Presents is a production of Aerosmith Press in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit our website, aerosmithpress.com. Special thanks to Nidia Hernandez, Oskold Menelchuk, Ezra Fox, and the whole Aerosmith team. Also thanks to UMass Boston. See you next time.